It's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to look out at each of you and and see you here. Uh, This morning is the last psalm of the summer. Uh, So we've arrived at the end of our summer psalm series. Uh, We're starting a new series next week, and I hope to get an email out to you earlier this week. I'm really excited about it, but I hope maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, I'll get some notice to you about what we're headed into. Uh, But this, for this morning, we're in Psalm 35. Uh, One of the things I've really appreciated over the past several weeks as we've looked at Psalms has been to see the way that, um, that we can trace words in our Psalms and see them named or used almost explicitly, like word for word, in many of the Psalms that we sing today. Uh, and, and, and there's just something really comforting about that, I think. To, the, there's something uh, about that that we're able to see, like the coherence of the hope of grace, the timelessness of his promises passed from one generation to the next. Uh, but when we look at the psalm uh, that we're looking at this morning, uh, that, that probably won't be the case. Uh, there might not be any um, familiar lyrics Uh, in this psalm. And that's because Psalm 35 is what we call an imprecatory. Imprecatory is a word that means to curse or a curse. And in an imprecatory psalm, uh, the psalmist is almost always David who wrote it. And uh, what he's doing is he is cursing, uh, registering a strong strength of evil in its midst. That's what's going on. Uh, All told, depending on how you read imprecations, how you interpret them, there are nine psalms, these primary thrusts that we would call imprecations. It could be called an imprecation. So they're they're throughout, they're really throughout the psalm book, and we, uh, North American or American Christians, have have often just not known what to do with them. Uh, We ask questions, good questions, I think, of the text, like, is it appropriate that I would pray this prayer. Uh, I, it, uh, even further down that road, there are many who would, add, who would say this, something like this. I can see why in his context, David might pray a prayer like this. But is it appropriate for me to pray a prayer like this? Um, <clears throat> even further down the road, you might ask, is it appropriate for me to pray a prayer like this uh, even after Jesus has completed his work on the cross, after his finished, accomplished work of redemption, is it, is it still necessary for me to pray prayers of imprecation? And, and I would just say those are all fine questions to ask. There's been strong debate over this uh, over the course of years. Um, you, you may know that uh, C.S. Lewis was famous for having that last view. He would say that because of Christ, it would be inappropriate for us to pray these prayers. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look, and I, I really want to lean into all those questions with you as best, as best I can. And I want to talk about why we need, why we, you and me, need a prayer like this one. Why we need to be able to pray a prayer like this one. That's the question. And before I get into it, I, I, I do want to say this. Um, <clears throat> there are going to be some in this room for whom uh, this question hits a little closer to home. And uh, there's always a, a fine line uh, in every sermon between saying too much and saying not enough. 
And, uh, and so I just want you to know, if, if all of your questions don't get answered, I want you to know that's okay. And, uh, and I am available, and there are many elders and shepherdesses, Matt's available, to, to pick these up in conversation with you down the road if you, if you leave the sermon and still have more questions, okay? All right, and with all that, let's, let's get into it. Um, let's look together. We'll hear from God's holy and matchless word. This is Psalm 35. I'll read all 28 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing, like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. They devise words of deceit, they open their mouths against me, they say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me, and let them not say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desire, let them not say, we have swallowed him up, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord 
who delights in the welfare of his servant. And then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us now. That you would speak to your people. We have listened to your word. Lord, do not stop speaking. Show us yourself. Build us in faith. Help us as we arrange our lives under the authority of your good word. I pray that you'd help us to hear. And that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you with the things that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So about a year and a half ago, it was early March. It's about two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, You might remember, I think it's less the case now, uh, but it was certainly the case then that our news feeds were just filled with gruesome images of what was going on over there in Eastern Europe as Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, it was just one image after another. It was really hard to see. And it was during that time, Christianity Today published an article. Some of you might have seen it or read it. And it was entitled, Go Ahead, Pray for Putin's Demise. Now, the author was Tish Harrison Warren. She's somebody I really love to read her. She's a a wonderful Anglican priest. I found her writings really helpful over the years. I know many of you have too. And she said in the article, uh, she said her head was filled with these images. And she couldn't help but feel powerless. She couldn't help but feel sick with heartache and full of anger over this wicked war. And she found herself turning again and again to a psalm like this one, an imprecatory psalm. In this case, it was Psalm 74. Now, she admitted that she didn't know, uh, she, didn't, she hasn't often felt comfortable with psalms like this, that she has uh, gravitated toward what she calls the more even-keeled promises of God's presence and mercy. But in the end, she said this, she said, imprecatory psalms were made for moments like this one. And what she was proposing is that there are certain times in this life and in this world when it's not, it's not just that an imprecatory psalm uh, will do, it's necessary, is what she was saying. Uh, for David, uh, he is obviously in one of those moments when he writes this song. And my question for you is, have you ever found yourself in such a moment? When you felt powerless, or sick with heartache, or full of anger. In those moments, one of the things that you need to know is that God is a defender of his people. And that he invites us to pray to him as the defender of his people, as one who loves justice. As one who hates injustice, and as one who promises to cleanse the world of evil, and as one who promises to fill the world with his glory. This psalm comes to us as an example of what it looks like to pray to the Lord as our defender. And the case that I want to make for you this morning as we look at the psalm is that this is a very faithful prayer. 
That this, that this would be prayed by the faithful people of God. And there are two points that I want to make to support this faithful prayer that we have before us. One is that it's offered in weakness. And the second is that it's anchored in hope. Offered in weakness, anchored in hope. First, it's offered in weakness. Uh, you see that uh, there are two contexts right out of the gate. I'm looking at the first few verses. There are two contexts where David is working out his place of great weakness. The first is in a courtroom. That's verse one. He asks God to contend with those who contend with me. Now that word contend is a legal term in this case. It's a, it can mean to make a case against or to accuse. Later in verse 11, you'll see he mentions malicious witnesses. Again, that's legal language that describes bearing false witness intending harm to the innocent in a court setting. That's, what, that's, a, that's the setting or the context that's being described here. So it all suggests that David is alone and defenseless in a courtroom and he's looking for someone to defend him. He's looking for a good defense lawyer is, is, uh, is what we're seeing in this passage. Someone to argue for him. So that's the first context. The second is a battlefield. He's asking God to fight for him, to take up arms for him. That's in verse 2 and 3. And I want you to pay particular attention to the weapons that he names uh, in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he says, be my shield or take up a shield and a buckler. Those are defensive weapons, okay? A buckler is a type of shield. It, it, it was rectangle, rectangular. It was huge. It was meant to cover the whole body. So what he's asking for the Lord to do is to protect him, to be his hiding place, to cover him. We've seen other Psalms that, that make those similar requests. But in verse 3, he says, draw the spear and the javelin. Now, those are offensive weapons. And that, that's, that's really the first signal in the psalm that this is an imprecatory psalm. Because what David is doing is he's moving from asking for the Lord to defend him to asking the Lord to proactively protect him. He's saying, it's not just protect me from my enemies, it's also stop them. Stop them from causing me or anyone else harm. Now that's the ask. And as we look further, I think we see that the scope of this request is commensurate. It really matches what David is experiencing in these moments. The first thing that he's experiencing is a, is a deep sense of powerlessness. Verse 12, my soul is bereft. It's like he's emptied of hope. He feels no sense of agency. Like he can't control the trajectory of the story. And so what's he doing? He is looking to the one who is all-powerful to save him. He's hoping that the one who writes the story of the whole world might rewrite what feels like the inevitable outcome of this story. Powerless. He also feels betrayed. You see this in verse 13. He begins talking about how he treated those people who are now persecuting him or putting him in a place of trouble. And he says, when they were sick, I fasted for them. When they were suffering, I fasted for them, I prayed for them, I grieved for them as one laments for his own mother. 
I mean, he, he's, what he's describing is this intense solidarity that he felt with the same people who were now persecuting him and causing him great trouble. And, and so he's been betrayed by them. And so what does he do? He goes to the one he knows who is eminently loyal. He goes to the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who binds himself to the good people, to his people in his love. And he calls on the one who has been faithful to him already to show his faithfulness yet again. That's what he's asking for. He's also experiencing a great deal of loneliness. He looks very alone in this passage. It says he's surrounded by people who are quote, gathered together against him. That's what it says in verse 15. He describes them as profane mockers. And what that means is that he's surrounded by a bunch of people who really find a lot of joy in his suffering. It's a lonely place. And it's especially lonely because no one will stand up for him. So in his loneliness, what is he doing? He is looking to the one who advocates. To the one who's passionate about justice and who has advocated for him in the past to stand with him again. That's what David is asking for. And it's a good, it's a good description, it's a good definition for us of, of not just what a defender is, but what a defender does. And what God does for his people. David is experiencing powerlessness, betrayal, and loneliness, so he's looking for God to exercise his power and covenant loyalty by advocating him, advocating for him. Power, loyalty, advocacy. That's what he's looking for. And what I want you to see is that this is a faithful prayer. Because he is basing his appeal based on who he knows God is. These are all descriptions of, who God, of, of God's character. He is appealing to God based on what he already knows of God, not, not, um, not what he wishes God would be. And this is really helpful to us because it speaks to us in our place of weakness. It's a faithful prayer because it, it, it is honest about our weakness, but it is, it is uh, exalting the Lord in his strength. And it tells us, it tells us that we don't need to be afraid that we are weak. Not that we don't need to be afraid of our weakness. We don't need to be afraid of the fact of our weakness. You know, we can spend our lives, we can spend our lives trying to eliminate all of our weaknesses or trying to cover them up as best we can. That is an exhausting life. It truly is. And one of the things this prayer is doing is it's saying we are free to name them and come to the Lord. He does not begrudge our weakness. And this is good news for us. Because right now we live in a world that is constantly reminding us, just like David did, we're living in a world that is constantly reminding us of our powerlessness. Let me give you an example. The American Psychological Association. I'll tell you, if you want a riveting read, just look up any article on the American Psychological Association. That was supposed to be funny. Uh, They published an article about six or eight months ago talking about the relationship uh, between news consumption and uh, and mental health. And uh, I'm boiling it all down to, uh, I'm reducing it down. If you want to know, I'll send you the link. 
But um, <clears throat> what they looked at was uh, not just the ways that we consume news, whether it's social media or traditional news outlets or whatever it is, but also they looked at ages from teenagers through uh, older adults, and, uh, and they came up with one broad application, and it was simply this, that there is a direct correlation between the amount of news we consume and the emotional distress that we experience. There's a, there's a direct correlation between the two. Now, now, why do you think that is? There are probably lots of different reasons. I mean, we can talk about you know, the, the mode of, of the communication of this. We can talk about headlines. We can talk about clickbait. I mean, we can talk about all those things. But one of the reasons it causes us emotional distress is that it reminds us of our weakness. It tells us about powerful things going wrong in the world and reminds us how little we have to be able to control it. Listen, when you pray this prayer, one of the things I want you to see is that in your weakness, there is a place that you can go where you can appeal to the defender of the weak, where you can look to the one who is strong in all the ways that we are weak, that he draws near to the brokenhearted, and that he saves the crushed in spirit, and he is not ashamed of our weakness. And so you don't need to be either. We come to him just as we are and we make this plea. This is a faithful prayer that's offered in weakness. It's also a faithful prayer that's anchored in hope. It, you may have noticed as, you, as we went through uh, this whole, as I read through the psalm, thanks for bearing with it's a pretty long psalm, I know. But you, you may have noticed that, uh, that he sprinkles hope in throughout his prayer. There are little, little glimpses of hope that you see. And every time he announces his hope, it's like he's anticipating some type of future joy. He, it's like he's anticipating there's going to come a time where, where God will act and he will, be, he will be rescued or relieved in some way. That's, what, that's kind of the way that the psalm is structured. And you might ask, like, how in the world, given what we know of what David is enduring, how in the world could he hold on to hope? Well, first, David is making a, he holds on to uh, hope because he, is, he knows he's making a, an appeal based on what he knows God wants. He knows that God is a God of justice. And that David himself is a victim of a pattern of injustice. Verse 7 mentions twice that his enemies are acting without cause. Again, he's evoking this legal language again against them. That's justice language. And then he picks up this idea again in verse 19. He uses the same exact words. And so what he's saying is that, uh, God, if you love justice, then my enemies are your enemies too. You know, the Shorter Catechism uh, puts it this way. He says, how do, it asks the question, how does Jesus uh, act as our king? And it says that he defends us by protecting us from all his and our enemies. You see what that, it does there? It says that our enemies are also God's enemies. We also 
see his hope in that he is actually asking for a proportionate response. This is important to understand. Every time you come across um, a request in the psalm to, for something that feels pretty violent or difficult to read, um, <clears throat> I, 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 I've looked at many of them over the past week, and in uh, all of them, as far as I can tell, are all asking for what we might call a proportionate response. You see this, in, or a proportionate punishment for what he's asking for. Verse 8, you see the, the response that he's asking for. Let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it. So what he's asking for in that passage, what, what he's asking for that God will do against his enemies is for his enemies to simply suffer in the way that they intend him to suffer. Do you see that? Uh, a good example of this, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, uh, Haman uh, was a persecutor of God's people, and he he ended up uh, he ended up hanging on the same gallows that he instruct that he constructed in order to persecute God's people with. Right, so he suffered in the way he was intending uh, to cause other people to suffer. That's the kind of proportionate response that he's asking for that David's asking for in this passage, and so um, he's simply saying, "Turn it back on them." Let, let the net he hid from me ensnare him. And so here's the key difference. This is what I really want you to see here in this passage. And you see it in many of these imprecatory prayers is that these are actually not vindictive prayers. Uh, their, appeal to, their, their appeals to God's character based on faith and who God is. They're, and they entrust the final word of what will happen to God. They entrust the final word to God. He, he is praying and he's deliberately refusing to take up arms himself. To return evil for evil. Uh, Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann says this. He, he's been pretty helpful in studying the Psalms. He says this, talking about this Psalm 35. David affirms God... By surrendering the last word to God. Uh, He leaves everything in God's hands. Even feelings of hatred and aggression. He he offers it all up. And gives it to God. And asks him to do with it what he will. That's the difference. Between a vindictive spirit and a plea for vindication. And it's so remarkable because David is asking God to act in the name of justice and then trusting the work of justice to him. And when Je- so, so when Jesus warns us not to return evil for evil, uh, to pray for those who persecute you, to turn the other cheek, what he's doing is he's warning us not to become who our enemies are. That's what makes this prayer a faithful prayer. Because at its root, a faithful prayer, like this one, is a surrendering prayer. You know, Jesus prayed a surrendering prayer. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's a surrendering prayer. And that's actually what David's doing here. And that's the kind of prayer we're being asked to pray in this passage. Faithful and surrendering prayers. 
I'd like you to all know the name, uh, Trevor Lawrence, because I really want you to know this guy. Uh, L-A-U is how he spells it, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E, uh, Trevor Lawrence. Um, <clears throat> he is a scholar who works, uh, is a, this is like the best name of a violence. And what, it do, what he does is he looks at texts in the Bible that, that are violent and he tries to help make sense of them. He tries to help us understand how to read them. It's really critical work. If you don't know, that's you in our day. Um, and so being able to kind of help people understand this, people who don't yet know Christ. And Trevor, Dr. Lawrence, I should call him, I don't, I haven't never met him actually, so I'll call him Dr. Lawrence. But what he did, um, he did his PA uh, himself understand it and be able to help us understand it. Um, he's also an elder in our denomination, so that's pretty cool. But if you're interested in digging deeper about these, then please check them out. Um, and, and, I, and I encourage you to that because I don't know about you, but I find surrendering prayers really hard. I mean, most of these psalms are surrendering prayers, but, but surrendering while you're suffering an injustice in such a profound way just sounds hard. And it really is only possible for us when we become convinced in our inner being that God's will is perfect and ours is not. And what Dr. Lawrence may, does is he makes the op- observations that we, one of the reasons these prayers are really valuable to us is because we can't pray these prayers without at some point turning inward, inward and realizing all the ways that we too deserve God's judgment. That we too live our lives needy for grace. And he said this, paraphrasing, he said, eventually these prayers break me. Because the more I learn to see God's faithfulness to his people, the more I learn how little I deserve it. And this is why a prayer like this has to point us to Jesus. Because it doesn't just teach us to entrust our enemies to Jesus. It also teaches us to entrust our selves to Jesus. That he protects us, not just from the enemies around us, but he protects us from God's judgment. And so a psalm like this should swell our hearts for the work of Jesus, our King. And so he adds this, and I want you to, if I've lost you at this point, I want you to come back because this is a brilliant observation he made, and I, I don't get to take credit for it. So he made this, but this is what he said. He said, every justice psalm or imprecatory psalm has three main characters, okay? The first uh, is the one who prays. In this case, it's David. They're either praying for themselves or for someone else who's suffering. That's character number one. The second character is the perpetrator of evil. That's the person being prayed against, okay? And then there is the God who is being called upon to act. Three main characters in every psalm. You see them in each one of these. In fact, there's a dialogue running through all of these psalms. Each one of these characters uh, is asked to speak certain things in this psalm. They're all named, and this, the tension kind of draws out. And the fascinating thing that we see in Jesus isn't just that he acts as a defender, but he, in the story of his life, and his ministry and his ascension into heaven plays all three of the roles that you find in, the, in, in any one of these psalms. He is the innocent sufferer who is vindicated by, the resu- by God in his resurrection. 
that he is also the enemy who drinks the cup of wrath. And he is the divine judge who defeats the enemy and ascends to his throne in the temple, promising to come again in judgment and fill the world with his glory. All three of these roles point to how Jesus acts as our defender. He defends us by showing us our ultimate vindication in the resurrection, and he promises to us a world cleansed of all evil under his rule. That's his work as a king. But all of this, all of this is because he inserted himself between us and the judgment we deserve. As your defender, he put himself in the place of harm. I'll close this way. Some of you are fans of the band U2, and uh, some of you are not. And I want you to know, that's okay. You, you and I can be friends. It's okay. Uh, but there's a story about them. Uh, this was back in 1987, uh, when they were just young lads touring America. I think this was the Joshua Tree Tour. That might check out. That, makes, that would make sense to me. It was the Joshua Tree Tour, and I think it was in Ari- they were in Arizona. Um, and one of their many hits on that album was uh, Pride in the Name of Love. Pride in the Name of Love wasn't on the Joshua Tree Tour, or Joshua Tree album. It was a, it's neither here nor there. That was one of the big ones. And the third verse, the third verse of Pride in the Name of Love was about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it was memorializing, in a lot of ways, this uh, man who fought for justice and uh, honoring the Lord and trying to make sense of those two things. And there were many people in America that really hated that song. They hated that U2 sang that song. They didn't want U2 to perform that song. And uh, they filed a threat that uh, during the concert, if they performed that song, that they would actually assassinate Bono. That was the threat. And this threat was relayed to the band through the FBI, and the FBI said, this is a credible threat. You need to take this seriously. And they said, there's very little that we can actually do to to ensure your protection if you decide to play this song at this concert. And then they asked them to actually just cancel the concert outright. Now, if you uh, know much about this band or you have read even a little bit about Bono, you know that um, they decided to do the concert anyway. And so they weren't, they weren't going to allow evil to win. They were going to continue to go forward. And, uh, and so when it came time to sing the song, uh, Bono describes it as this time where he was entering in a place that he didn't know he was going to get out of. Those are my words, not his but he was kind of headed in, not knowing what to expect. And so he sang the song. And when it came time for the third verse, he got down on his knees. And he closed his eyes. And he says, he sang that song like he had never sung anything ever before in his life. Which for him is really saying something. And he sang the rest of the song that way. And at the end, he opened his eyes. And he realized two things. One was that he was still alive. And the other was that his bassist, Adam Clayton, was standing right in front of him. 
He had inserted himself. He was staring down a crowd of 55,000, inserting himself between his friend and whatever threatened him. There are all kinds of reasons we need a defender in this world as we wait for Jesus. All kinds of enemies. All kinds of things in the world that threaten us. That will go away. But remember that when you pray for a defender, remember that you really do have one. One who inserted himself between you and the greatest threat to your existence. One who loves you and has saved you and will never leave you. Amen. Let me pray. O you who defend the weak and the powerless, O you who vindicate, be our salvation. Rescue your people. Lead us in the cause of your goodness in this world and anchor us in hope. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.